Hi, this is Jackie the Joke Man Martling, and you're listening to Mike Tomato. Stay right there. The Mike Tomato Happening. my life at a very early age I mean, it filled our household my mother had eclectic taste she loved bb king she played his records all the time elvis presley are you kidding me willie nelson rolling stones records uh charlie pride she played perry como which really didn't draw me in but you know again she was eclectic in her tastes my older sister michelle had a great selection of Top 40 45s from the day. Boy, I wish I still had that collection. Holy cow. Monkeys Records, which I wanted to be a monkey. That was my my goal as a young kid. I didn't know what I really wanted to do yet because, you know, I was probably five. And rarely do you decide your life's path. I mean, it's either Batman or, in my case, I wanted to either join the monkeys. And I had a whole plan. I was going to be the drummer. And I was going to tell Mickey Dolenz, hey, you go up there and share the spotlight because you're, you're singing lead all the time behind the drums. Go up there and uh, co-front with Davy Jones. Well, I probably wasn't that elaborate, but I had a scheme. I, I knew I was going to. Or I noticed that the Hudson brothers didn't have a, a drummer, at least not when they were lip syncing their tunes on their Saturday morning show. So, you know, the razzle dazzle hour, man, I was going to be a Hudson brother. Neither one of those dreams came true. Alas. But anyway, Michelle had uh, Monkey's Records. She uh, And then when she entered high school around that time, a lot of Motown A-tracks, and that was magic to me. Still is. Dad was a big band guy, Glenn Miller, Benny Goodman, Lionel Hampton. So by the time I was bitten by the rock and roll bug in the uh, late 70s, I had already had a foundation that spanned genres fed to me by my family. But... I became a full-blown rock and roller by the age of nine. You know, joined the Kiss Army and everything. Yeah, Kiss was a band that was just about making waves around that time with their dunder-headed anthems and they had comic book-style personas, you know, the demon, the star child, the spaceman, and the cat. And the cat was my idol, Peter Chris. I think it was probably initially the Kiss Alive album booklet with the photos in it that uh, keyed me into wanting to be a drummer because I saw Peter, you know, above his uh, silver mirror pearl kit holding his drumsticks above his head. And I was like, yeah, that's what I want to do. So I got my first set of drums around the age of 12, probably. It was a knockoff set that didn't really hold together very well. The first brand name kit I bought with allowance, grass cutting, and car washing savings was a Tama Swing Star, which was a press board kind of affair but it, it sounded good and i outfitted that with some used peisty sabian and zildjian symbols that i bought at guitar center on 95th and western in uh, evergreen park no longer there but uh yeah i bought my stuff there and from there it was you know playing in local garage bands really poorly and bashing away in my parents basement trying to figure out bad company and led zeppelin tunes my early hero was John Bonham of Led Zeppelin. He had this uh, thunderous groove 
and he remains a, a great inspiration to me. Probably one of my all-time favorite drummers. In fact, he is. And and, and he and he knew how to swing. Now I didn't know what swing meant, but I I learned. I learned what swinging was. I began taking lessons from Bob Berg at the age of 13 and Bob was the professional musician husband of my mother's friend Joelle now 40 years later we remain the best of friends and I love every moment I spent with him and every time we get together we listen to music we talk about music and uh, you know some things never change but he turned me on to a whole new world of music I mean he was you know, he would come over and, hey, what are you listening to? Oh, I got the new Duran Duran album. I've been listening to The Cars. And he would bring over Weather Report and Miles Davis and Tony Williams' Lifetime. And I was like, top of my head just went, <laughs> off into the stratosphere. And he turned me on to guys like Tony Williams and Steve Gadd from his record collection. And I was, I was entranced. Still am. But being a music lover has sent me, and I'm sure it does you, down a million rabbit holes of discovery and drumming is part of my professional endeavors i both play professionally and i teach i love music i love the drums and over the years i've been inspired by so many drummers from all types of music because it enriches our lives music enriches our lives it tells our stories it feeds our souls and i like hanging with musicians because we share that mutual attachment to the universal language and its magic conversations are rarely boring with fellow cats. So now at the age of 53, I find myself in awe of where drumming has gone. I mean, while technological advances in the world of electronic percussion are plenty, and they have been since the introduction of the Simmons pads and the Lindrum of the 80s, it comes back to making rhythm, pounding on wood and plastic with sticks and hands. And it's a primal instinct and a primitive urge to fill the air with thumps and crashes that draw the percussionist in. You know, I see some of these heavy metal drummers and it's like, holy cow, it's superhuman. I listen to guys like Gavin Harrison with Porcupine Tree and King Crimson. And like, this guy is just so poetic. Keith Carlock comes to mind, who plays with everybody from Sting to Steely Dan, you know, all the big drummer gigs. There's so many, I, I sit here and list drummers that I love forever. And I recently uh, sat in with a drum circle at King Music in Bradley, Illinois. It was hypnotic, meditative, and wonderful. And I thought to myself, I wish I had time to do this every day. Mickey Hart of the Grateful Dead has a great quote. He said, life is about rhythm. We vibrate. Our hearts are pumping blood. We are a rhythm machine. That's what we are. You can't deny the fact that you're a rhythm machine, whether you play drums or not. So drumming, in addition to being a musical application, is also a great way to release stress. I find that after a long day, if I've had a lot of shit to deal with, sit down at the kit, grab the bongos. As the late, great Neil Peart said, if you've got a problem, take it out on a drum. So on this week's edition of the Mike Tomano Happening, we're going to give the drummer some. I've unearthed a couple of classic interviews from the Tomano Land vaults with two of the most innovative drummers of our time. Enjoy. No discussion of drummers is complete without mention of Terry Bozio. His days as a member of Frank Zappa's group to his groundbreaking new wave band, Missing Persons, his various roles in bands such as UK, the Brecker Brothers, Jeff Back, and then his coming to the forefront of solo drum performance 
has Terry remaining an inspiration and an ambassador for percussion. Welcome Terry Bozio to the show. Hi, Terry. Thank you so much. Hi, and and, uh, thanks for the kind words. I appreciate that. Well, you're very welcome. It's very (laughs) difficult. And if there's one way to describe Terry Bozio, in my eyes, it would be ever-evolving. As your career has progressed professionally and musically, your artistic views and your means of expression have continued to grow as well. Would that be accurate? Yeah. You know, all my heroes and influences were innovators, and they changed constantly, you know, from architecture and art to, uh, well, in pop, David Bowie, and uh, in, in jazz, you know, my main influences are uh, Miles Davis and Weather Report. And, you know, people like that, the day they do something, that's the day that genre changes. And I've always been inspired by those guys. And, you know, I don't consider myself, uh, you know, like an, an innovator or anything, but, uh, it, you know, it does take more than a paragraph to describe what I do, mm-hmm. you know. It's not uh, an easily, I'm not an easily marketed commodity. No, no. And there was a time I know in the late 80s when Missing Persons was wrapping up and you were saying, well, you know, I'm at the age now where I can do this myself. And you kind of took the reins for your career uh, in your own hands. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that worked. We had our 15 minutes of fame. And, uh, you know, uh, I ended up kind of beached somewhere, you know, uh, and the big lesson was I learned that being rich and famous is not necessarily a happy place. You know, a lot of times you just make enough money to continue doing it. And if it's hell, then I'd rather starve and do exactly what I like, you know, as an yeah. artist. You know, we see that yeah, a lot with yeah. people being, you know, so famous and they have everything that they've wanted seemingly, but then they're unhappy. But you've been able to forge your own niche. Now, you know, you brought up something interesting about your influences being whether they're architecture or literature. I mean, your vehicle of artistic expression is music, drums and percussion. But what's so interesting about you as an admirer and a fan is that you filter all kinds of influences through what you do art literature like you said architecture even nature i've heard you reference and can you expound on that a little bit well you know stravinsky the great composer said uh mediocre artists compose Mm -hmm. uh better artists uh borrow and great artists steal so uh you know when when a master like that um i've read all his books and uh when he says something like that, he takes himself off a pedestal and, uh, you know, describes his, his uh, approach to composing and says, I compose by an act of delectation. I had to learn what that word meant, so mm-hmm. I looked it up in the dictionary, and it says, to find delight in. So this is a guy who, you know, before there was uh, recordings and things, uh, he had to work in, in secret in, in a, a, you know, a small room in his house with a, a slightly out-of-tune piano that he put felt on to muffle it so neighbors wouldn't hear him and steal his, his ideas, you know, until he could write them down and send the pages to the publisher. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, you can just imagine a guy, you know, searching for the right chord and going, no, 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 ah, I mm-hmm. like this, and then start from there, and then something like the Rite of Spring comes out. You know, so he he just made it. He also said it was like a, a pig foraging for truffles. In other words, you stick your nose in the dirt until you find something. Until that you find something, good. right? Yeah, that took all this mystery and sort of uh, I don't know self criticism and everything out of it, and music just became my hobby and my my joy. 
And so uh, I just constantly do it and I love to do it. And uh, I would love someday for everyone to, I must have like 50 compositions that are sitting in my computer, you know, right. ready to go. But I'm a little too busy right now to get them out, but it's, it's that kind of thing, you know, um, you, you find, I think any artist, the true, the true goal of any artist is to look inside, try and find something unique, honest, authentic, and beautiful that's really you, and then share that with others. Because, yeah. you know, nobody else can be me. I can't be Billy Cobham. I can't be Buddy Rich. You know, they did that way better than I could ever emulate them. And this is something I don't think we teach enough in our schools, you know. Mm -hmm. There comes a time where you've got to go, okay, I know the scales and the chords, and I know this, and I understand that. And then you've got a bunch of musicians out there that just play that stuff they've been taught. And they'll play it way more perfectly than me or, or maybe even Miles, you know. But I'd rather hear one, you know, poorly played note by Miles than uh, the best trumpet player in the world, you know, running some exercises or something. Right, and, right. And I think that the whole jazz thing, uh, you know, like my, my influences basically are from classical music, uh, from, uh, uh, you know, the, the whole Western uh, European uh, scientific and art school of music uh, has a whole lot of uh, it's the language we use you know so I try and use that language when I explain what it is I do then there's jazz and not ding 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 jazz traditional jazz but mm -hmm. the, the freedom of jazz the improvisation this is a, a unique uh, you know not, not unique to America but it's a it's a unique genre that offers this freedom and and the true artists like Miles and Leather are people who improvise in a compositional manner. They don't just play crap that they've learned how to play, you right. know, when it comes time to take a solo. They think about it, you know. They dip into the unconscious, pull something out that's that's interesting, and at the same time, they're focused on what that is so that they can develop it and repeat it and, you know, retain it and, you know, make it work. Right. And, and that's what I like to do. Yeah, and, uh, you do it. Third, yeah, well, I try. You do and it quite third, well. <laughs> Thank you. The third influence is uh, ethnic percussion from around the world. Mm -hmm. I mean, there must be millions of different styles in Africa alone. You know, then there's the Middle East and, you know, just, and with all of these uh, <clears throat> influences, you know, I try and name my pieces after uh, the, the, the the literal traditional rhythm that I, I am uh, you know trying to emulate, and if you look at Stravinsky, you know we're all borrowing and 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 getting inspired from each other around the planet, and we have been you know since the dawn of time. Like Stravinsky was a Russian, he was very influenced by the French school. Debussy, who is French, he, a lot of what he does came from um, a world fair where you know Japan opened up in uh, you know uh, late eighteen early 1900s uh, there was a World's Fair and uh, Japanese music and art was there and uh, that really influenced him and, and Ravel so you know we're all uh, but but at the same time you know Stravinsky doesn't sound French and Debussy doesn't sound Japanese you know they're their own persons their own filter so I, I try and look at things like that you know not not necessarily ripping somebody off uh, but, but uh, being you know, uh, so enthralled with uh, the expression of uh, a certain style that you want to pay homage to mm -hmm. or honor it by, by uh, you know, doing something that's, uh, you know, uh, reminiscent of or, uh, you know, in the style of that 
uh, but coming through, you know, an American white guy who's a jazz drummer, you know, <laughs> right. turned rock drummer for commercial purposes. You know, it's when you're when you're talking to Terry Bozio, you have all these jumping off points that I can that that inspire. It's like you're drumming. You know, when, when you're playing your drums, we're taking on this journey as a listener and interviewing you. I notice that you say things that lead me to other questions, which is you know the sign of a great interview subject. But when you talked about Stravinsky. And the Rite of Spring, I read something, and I'll paraphrase these quotes, but he was saying that it came to him in a dream and that he was merely a, a conduit for it. Do you feel that way? Like when you channel just something that you can't really, that's not really tangible when you're playing? Oh, yeah, absolutely. When it's going right, I haven't got a clue. And, mm-hmm. and I'm constantly surprised what comes out. I cannot take credit for that. I can take credit for practicing. I can take credit for following through on ideas and struggling to realize them. And I can uh, take credit for showing up every day and, and trying to you know get into that space where... Yeah. God or whatever you talk, you know, whatever you want to call it, for lack of a better word, uh, comes through and, and just takes over. When that happens, man, it's, it's the most amazing thing, you know? And, yeah. you know, it, it, yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful thing. And, and I think almost every great musician talks about that. Yeah. You know, uh, we all, every great sports guy, every great artist, uh, every craftsman, you know, I, I live in Japan a lot now. And I watch uh, educational TV over there, and, and you'll, they'll do a documentary about a guy who just makes a box that some, you know, someplace maybe in Washington or something, uh, you know, puts chocolates in, and then President Obama sends it to diplomats and stuff like that. Yeah. And this guy, man, makes the, the most beautiful, perfect little wooden box, and it shows the whole process of how he makes it, and then how they cover it in this special handmade paper, and you know, just the art and the and the dedication to a craft yeah. and to quality, you know, and doing something right is, is just so inspiring, but they all talk about that same thing. You know, when they're in the zone, it's like something's taking over them and they just do it. You know, uh, musicians at large can go to drumchannel.com and see you. It's like wandering through a wonderland. And, you know, I teach music and kids today, I hate, you know, kids today, I sound like my father, but, yeah, me too. <laughs> but there's not a, a push for them to dedicate themselves to a craft and, and to no, have attention I mean, to detail. The government of, of America is a corporation. Okay? Right. And corporations are running the whole thing and it's an, on an economic basis. So they want enough stupid worker bees, you know, to fulfill their rich greed and desires. And, you know, I mean, I look at the news and I just go, you know, how many islands, how many yachts, how many mansions, how many golf courses do these guys want to own before they're okay? And then how many armies, how many fucking weapons and, mm-hmm. you know, whatever the hell else you want to have that gives you this sense of power do people need, you know? Yeah. My, you know, I, I have a mentor, um, his name is Efren Toro, and he's uh, from Puerto Rico. He's a brilliant Latin musician, played with Stan Getz. He's a brilliant jazz musician, was one of the first call studio guys, knows electronics, and is, uh, you know, taught MIDI to studio musicians in L.A. And, uh, you know, he, he studied with uh, Vic Firth at the Conservatory of Music. Okay. He studied Indian music. He studied... Uh, uh, African and uh, um, flamenco, and introduced the cajon and the djembe to the LA studio scene years ago. You know, and this guy's just a genius. And he says, you know, man, I live like a poor person, but I have a very rich inner life, and that to me is very inspiring. Yeah. Secondly, he said, 
we humans are very simple. After we have food, clothing, and shelter, we're curious. We want to learn. And the problem is America is just not teaching and not yeah. taking responsibility for the freedoms that we have. And, you know, not, not uh, you know, I mean, compared to Europe and, and uh, Japan, you know, the education system, you know, is, is just so great. And the response to, you know, open-mindedness to new ideas, to different ideas is, is uh, honored and touted, you know. And, and here in America, you know, like it's, it's almost like we're touting our stupidity. You know, and I, I have faith in, in humans. You know, I've had an experience one time in Iowa and, you know, I played a clinic and after the show, this guy comes up in coveralls and a John Deere hat and goes, look, I'm a farmer. I ride a tractor all day in my field. I know nothing about music. He goes, but I brought my little grandson here because he wants to play the drums. Mm. And he goes, I totally understand what you're doing. You're making music on the drums. And when you described everything you did, I totally got it. You, you spoke in terms that anybody could understand. And I just thought to myself, well, this is a farmer, you know, so mm -hmm. there is hope for me, you know. Yeah. Even you know, this music business is so, ah, you know, it's it, everything's corrupt, I suppose, to a, to a certain point. But but it's it's really biased towards just making money out of uh, you know whatever, however they can use it and squeeze yeah. it out somewhat, you know, for the for mass consumption. You know, it's like uh, McDonald's hamburgers or something. And, yeah. and you know, there's there's a lot of very interesting music and and. You know, as Slominski said in in one of his books, uh, you know the 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 biggest problem for for man, the source of all human problems, is uh, is uh, non acceptance of the unfamiliar. Oh, I don't know that, so it must be bad, mm -hmm. you know? And, and then, you know, this is in a book that uh, he wrote uh, the worst reviews of the best composers from the time of Beethoven on. Mm. <laughs> you know, comparing Debussy and and, uh, and Stravinsky and stuff to, uh, you know, a riot at a zoo or something. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I mean, just like crazy things and it's in every things. it's in everything we do and i think today people are being conditioned not to even attempt to find something new you know mm -hmm. you mentioned ethnicity or ethnic drumming in your playing and, and the influence it has on you and i remember hearing a ginger baker interview and he was talking about meeting the british jazz cat uh phil seaman and he said he turned him on to these african drummers and these are kids who don't know what a paradiddle are these are men who are using drums merely as a tool to communicate and uh, there's also something primal in your drumming as well so you have to digest your chops i'm guessing and just put them in the back room a little bit i i feel that uh Natural musicians have something very, very special. And Efren Toro talks about this a lot. He's got a book called From Linear to Harmonic. And, uh, it, it, you know, it's, it's like it, it links the physics of, of music. Music is like a metaphor for the whole universe, you know. Mm -hmm. Everything that we can perceive is within, I think it's 72 octaves or so of the electromagnetic field. Everything from our DNA to pitch to tempo to the revolutions of the planets and the sun and the, you know, the galaxies is all happening in time. X-rays, radio waves, all this stuff is measured in frequency. 
Okay, frequency, if you slow it down, a G is maybe 80 beats per minute or something, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and, and a G, maybe in our uh, hearing uh, range, 20 to 20K hertz, is, is if you bump that up trillions of cycles per second, uh, according to the law of the octave, it basically is a, a, the color red-orange. <laughs> You know, so everything is interrelated. Harmony is what the universe is. And these physical laws are so deep. So you have, and and they follow like the harmonic overtone series, which is not a tempered series. We in the West look at things linearly and uh, there's, uh, the information is so, so, uh, the perception of the information is so one way or the other from our grid like uh you know standpoint uh, or point of view that uh we we miss the beauty of the notes that are kind of in between which natural musicians use and and kind of play in the cracks rhythmically mm-hmm. because they they hear an overall pulse and they're able to subdivide more according to this uh harmonic overtone series and you know it, it, it's so deep that you know for a guy who teaches music you'll understand this right. i play an ostinato in five the name of the piece is seven equals five okay. Efren tells me one day seven and five are the same thing and i said what do you mean you know and he said well if you take you know you play you're playing this piece in five it's three plus two now you know four over three right yeah, yeah. and you know three over two right yeah so string them together linearly and you have seven over five perfectly <laughs> right so now i play this piece I, I keep the ostinato i start in five people's perception is that i'm in five and then i start playing seven over the top of that and it's just like kind of a seamless morph it, it's a very uh weird and uncomfortable feeling for us because yeah. it just feels like I'm changing tempo, but it's not. <laughs> the tempo stays the same, the bass line stays the same, and the subdivisions are from a different perspective. So, you know, all the great innovators, they, they look at things like this, they see things we don't see, right. and then they share that with us, and then things change, right? And we disregard old ideas for new ones. And, and that, to me, is a very exciting thing. talking about Terry Bozio, you bring up music that kind of is challenging to listen to, and, and not, not that it's hard to listen to, but when you present something that maybe takes more than just a passive listen, and I go to sleep every night with music, and I put my little earbuds in, and I tried to pick something out last night, and it was Bartok, um, concert for percussion, and I think it was cello, and I couldn't listen to it because it was affecting me physically. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. His music is very intense, man. Yeah. I was like, yeah, I, I and, can't and, listen to this right now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, yeah, you have to be in the right mood for, for certain things. You have to be open. I think, you know, I call theaters in, uh, a church for music, you know, because right. then you're in the right receptive and comfortable uh, environment to give yourself to a musical experience. Right. And there's something about live music in a room that's just so magical that cannot be captured on a DVD or a CD. And uh, uh, yeah, his his music is very complex. His 
systems were uh, were deeply mathematical, and uh, you know he he was breaking the boundaries of uh, of how far you know harmony could be stretched uh, in the West, it, much in the same way that the, the serialists did, right. but. Uh, the end result is what's what's the important thing. It doesn't really matter. I mean, it, it's wonderful to know that this this music that's so crazy, you know, like you name the composer, you know, uh, has has a system and has a meaning behind it. You know, mm-hmm. um, you know, like Debussy uh, was taught by. Um, uh, Cesar Franck, I think, and Cesar Franck was the modulation king, you know, and and uh, he asked Debussy, "What are you doing? Why don't you modulate?" And Debussy just said, "I'm doing this for my pleasure." Yeah, right. So yeah, it can get it can get too scientific and mathematic sometimes, and it, it kind of yeah. th- that's the balance of art, you know, of the artist. Yeah, right? I mean, you know, Bartok, I love his music, you know, I love the the chordal harmonies and 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 all that stuff. Uh, but, uh, you know, if you look into it deeply, the guys who have written books about him talk about X cells and Y cells and Z cells. And mm. he had a very serious system uh, that he was, uh, you know, using to, to find his way and his expression. Same thing with uh, Schoenberg and Berg and, uh, and even Stravinsky with uh, the serious 12-tone, you know, methods they would use. It was very mathematical and, and very inspiring, you know, yeah. and very similar to, to drumming because it's, it's, you know, permutations of the notes instead of permutations of rhythms so you know these guys were deep these guys were very deep and and i'm you know for me i mean i i'm trying to make music on the drums the drum set you know has has a a sort of reputation as being an illegitimate instrument you know right up there with the harmonica and the tambourine anybody can play the drums anybody can play the tambourine anybody can blow on a harmonica so, you know, I, I say no. You know, the drum set is a unique American invention. Mm-hmm. It has a history and a tradition, and especially in the jazz tradition, it's filled with innovators who have pushed what can be done on the drums, uh, you know, forward to, to the point of someone like Billy Cobham, who I don't think anyone's surpassed yet. Right. And, uh, you know, and I'm... I'm not going to give you a historical list of the great drummers that, you know, right. there's too many of them. That, we'll get uh, to that. <laughs> well, you know, but yeah. What I'm trying to do is make music on the drums. I've always felt that way. And, and uh, now my drums are tuned. Uh, the yeah. bass drums are tuned to bass notes. The toms are tuned diatonically for half the kit and chromatically for the other half. And uh, I, ha- I have a MIDI trigger system mm. that, that uh, has a sine wave, just a pure pitch that doesn't interfere with the acoustic sound of the drum that matches the pitch I tune the tom to. So therefore, you know, you really hear the melodies. And what I do is play melodies. Right. Uh, you know, if, if for listeners who might be looking for a clue, if you can imagine weather report with melodies floating on top of a groove bass line and uh, some ethnic percussion colors and orchestrational, uh, you know, uh, treatments being thrown in and uh you know joe zawinul and miles davis uh a guy who's emulating joe zawinul and miles davis playing those kind of melodies on the toms that's what i do right and people get it and i'm you know oh, it's I'm beautiful so, I'm humbled and grateful now you did an album called polytone and the first time i heard it i was it was nighttime. I was listening to WXRT. Gary Winograd, a friend of mine, does a show called Jazz Transfusion. This is, you know, decades ago. 
and I'm hearing this music, and it's unlike anything that I've ever heard before. And if, I knew I could hear your tom toms. I'm like, that has to be Terry Bozio. And, it, and it's an album you do with the great late Mick Carn and David Torn. Tell us about that. Uh, two of the most beautiful people I've ever met, along with Patrick O'Hearn. Uh-huh. I, I would just, you know, I would just say those guys are soulmates of some sort, and uh, I love what they do. And that was the first time uh, I really felt that. Uh, that definition of unconditional acceptance of all the members and their ideas. You don't tell people like that how to play. You just let them do what they do. And uh, they let me do what I do, and we all, you know, make it work together. Mm -hmm. Nick is very interesting. I mean, he plays such innovative, unique, uh, strong, beautiful bass lines. Uh, And he he claims he's not an improviser and he can't improvise. So a lot of the stuff he would sit there, he he wouldn't be playing. And then when we would finish it and go, okay, we're going to make something out of this, he would take that tape, go into a practice room, and work out his bass parts, pose his bass parts, and then come back with the most backward-sounding, weird, wonderful, surprising, uh, you know, unique and and wonderful bass lines uh, yeah. and torn you know have you ever seen the movie about picasso painting where uh i think Truffaut did it and he has like a, a white silk screen or something in front of him and it's filmed and you see picasso just do two or three lines and you just want to go stop it's perfect there and then he does another thing and you go okay stop it's perfect there and then he does another thing and then stop it's perfect there and then before you know it he's made this masterpiece and then you know, he, he starts with another blank canvas and it shows the beauty of his process, you know, and how each stage of it should be a finished project. Well, Tolan is the same way and he would loop the process of him creating a loop and there was all the, okay, stop, that's perfect. Let's use that. No, oh God, stop, that's great. Oh man, you know, it was just constantly evolving and, and this beautiful thing. And, uh, you know, they're both just uh, amazing artists and, and dear, wonderful, warm friends that you just, they're magnetic. You just want to be around them, you know? Yeah. So, uh, but, you know, the business was, was very hard. We did some touring and we did some, and we did that record, but uh, it was very difficult to, uh, you know, make it happen uh, for all of us. And that's being in three different places of the world, you know, yeah. it was tough as well. So, but yeah, uh, I'm, I'm hoping uh, in the future, one of the things I still would like to do, because otherwise I don't want to play with anybody, uh, maybe except Alan Holdsworth and Matt Stilato and Tony <laughs> Yeah, right. There you go. <laughs> well, we did that, and I, I don't think Alan wants to do it anymore, but uh, I would be willing to do that again anytime for no money. <laughs> right, right. Um, but uh, Tony Levin and David Torn are, are also close friends and have done records together. So, uh, you know, I, would, I, I thought that would be a cool trio to do. So oh, yeah. maybe in the future I can, uh, you know, with his uh, Tony's uh, touring schedule with Gabriel and Crimson and then Stickman his own thing mm-hmm. uh, it's, and then my own thing Dave's doing movies and other things you know it's very hard to get us all on the same page so right. you know I'm hoping well we'll hope you know, who knows man. You know, and your chamber works recording with Metropole Orchest is ab- absolutely some of my favorite music of all time. Can you tell us oh, about man. that massive undertaking? Man, you know how that started? 
uh, I, I started on an MC, is it MC 500, the Roland little, you know, box, like sequencing box oh, in yeah, the yeah, little like yellow slanted case. And yeah, anything, think yeah. Had, yeah. It started on that with a Proteus. I got a Proteus orchestra and, and I thought, man, these sounds are beautiful. And, uh, I just started chipping away and, uh, I had it, I had maybe, I don't know, 10 or 15 minutes of it. And, uh, I was living in Austin and traveling to LA uh, from time to time. So I went to LA. I think I was staying with Gail Zappa up at the Zappa house. And she said, you know, Nicholas Slominski lives down in, uh, you know, uh, like Santa Monica, you should go visit him. And I said, Oh man, could you set that up? So I went and visited Nicholas and kind of became a friend and, you know, wanted to go and I got my books autographed by him <laughs> and all that stuff. I mean, he's a deep guy. He, he conducted the first version of Perez's ionization, you know, mm-hmm. he was a, a pioneer of, of uh, musicologist. And so, uh, I, I played him before he died. I played him uh, what I had of that. I said, Nicholas, would you like to hear some music that I composed? And he goes, oh, yes. And so he puts on the headphones and his eyes lit up and he just says, oh, what is that on the oboe? Oh, I see. What is, you know, he had perfect pitching. <laughs> wow. And, and he goes, it's so rhythmic and it's this and it's that. And I'm talking about um, the beginnings of what was to become Self-Portrait with Scar, Opus 1. And he was so encouraging to me that I went home and finished the damn thing and uh and then just started to you know have that uh, by that time i think i had read all the uh, stravinsky books and you know uh, aaron copeland and some other people uh you know uh, inspired me to to want to compose and uh i lost that fear of uh competing with a master you know mm-hmm. 20th century master so i basically just started chipping away and felt like this is just for me and so i did it and i you know, spit out the note writing software, which was horrible at the time on performer and, uh, uh, red penciled it. And, uh, then I gave it to some friends in Vienna, Alex Markacek and Gerald, uh, Prinefeld. Alex is a great guitarist who I've worked with. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Gerald is a fantastic, uh, bass clarinet player. And, uh, they wrote out all the parts from the score and, uh, I rehearsed and we were able to premiere it in its, uh, sort of string quintet and, uh, and um, what was it, a uh, um, woodwind quintet um, uh, ensemble. And uh, we premiered it at the Vienna Jazz Festival. And mm-hmm. then after that, uh, when I had the parts, uh, I got approached by Metropole uh, and uh, I, I did it with them. And it was, you know, things like that are like uh, peak moments in your life where you just, you just want to be in the room when that's mm-hmm. happening. You know? well, the music is magical. Just a wonderful listen. Well, thank you listen. very much. play the largest tuned percussion kit now the addition of a new drum cymbal or percussion instrument is that facilitated by a sound that you're looking to add or do you add them and then bring more sounds do you know you understand what my that question is yeah both sometimes people give me things that are surprising uh, like a wood, I got a friend he's from Albuquerque originally his name's Paul E and he makes uh, uh, wood headed instruments and he made me a wood headed djembe a wood headed tambourine mm. and a wood headed bongos and they're just beautiful instruments one of a kind you know handmade and uh, 
So I've been using the wood-headed djembe and uh, wood-headed tambourine, and they've inspired me to do a lot of things. Uh, other times, I just, I'm, you know, I'll think, ah, oh, you know, I, how, how can I get like a finger cymbal sound, you know, for a Middle Eastern thing? So I'll take a DW Tom uh, mount. It's called a TB12. It's like a little oval thing with a wing nut on it that you use to clamp your Tom onto the, the L bar, you know, that, mm-hmm. that holds it. And uh, the screw holes in it are, uh, you know, you just put some finger cymbals on there and then find the right thread of a screw and you've got four finger cymbals kind of sitting and rattling together and it takes up a four by two inch space so you know i just bring it in and it's hidden in there and i can play finger cymbals so i'm constantly thinking of how how i can make it easier better uh, get something to be more uh, you know facile or you know more flexible uh, more easier to set up to do to you know get more sounds expand the whole thing mm-hmm. and uh, you know in terms of inventions and tuning locks or electronic stuff or whatever I'm, I'm just always it's like if you make the thing that you work at your hobby and you want to do it quality uh, then every act of, of life every breath can be of quality you know right. it's you know like the zen tea ceremony you're just making tea you know mm-hmm. and here in america we put a paper bag in that tastes like crap and lukewarm water and uh and in in japan it's it's a ritual that's equal in its beauty to uh, a roman catholic high mass or something mm-hmm. you know? yeah well that's the so, the attention to detail in everything we do right that's mm-hmm. the I can't tell you how much of an influence you've been on my, not only on the way that I approach playing the drums, uh, which isn't to say I am anywhere near you, but just as an artist, just your view on life has just been uh, something that's inspired me for decades. So, Terry, it's an honor to speak with you, and thank you so well, much. Thanks, thank man. I, I appreciate it. And what you just said is, uh, you know, I would probably make me like the way you play. Because I think, you know, uh, chops and technique, is, it's just a means to an end. But what somebody says from inside, what their intention is, that's, that's where the real beauty is. Thank you, my friend. Thank you, Mike. I wish we had more time. Thank you so much. Carmine Apiece, one of the most influential and recorded drummers in rock history. Hey, man. How you doing? It's been a long time. We used to, back in the old days on my morning show in the in the 90s, we used to do uh, Carmine Around the World. Yeah, yeah. Where in the world is Carmine? That's, Carmine Apiece you know. used to give us... Um, weather from wherever you were on tour and then we would just go off right. tangents you also yeah, gave yeah. me uh sweet sweet connie's phone number and i had her on the show she's is she still uh, with us i don't know i uh, <laughs> you know i i got that from one of my guys in uh fairfield Fair, fairbanks alaska right that's where she was living and uh i still talk to that guy every week well, you know? tell him to tell connie uh, that i said hello <laughs> okay. she's immortalizing me <laughs> 
uh, Carmine of Peace and your brother Vinny Apice. You know, and I always get that confused. I mean, I know you're Carmine of Peace, yeah. but yeah. and you guys did that because you both came up as drummers, and so just to distinguish yourselves a little bit. Well, we no, we came up different. You know, I, I used to be Carmine Apice and, and up until the Rod Stewart days, but I was constantly correcting everybody. They were saying Carmine of Peace, Carmine of Peace. So when I went with Rod Stewart, he finally said, you need one way to say your name. Because, you know, we're going to be out there in front of thousands of people every night. Yeah. And let's pick one way to say your name, because you're like three different people, you know, with the three different names. So I said, well, most people say a piece. He said, well, why don't we just go with a piece? I said, okay, fine. And the guys... And then the- I did... <laughs> then, then there was a Ludwig ad that went and called it, uh, you know, they said, uh, everyone wants a piece of a piece, which made sort of sense you yeah know? yeah yeah well that works and, and then the guys in the old neighborhood just go hey carmine that's you know so yeah, yeah. yeah yeah but you know all there's so many guys that still ain't got the carmine right they call me carmen yeah you know when i when i'm walking on the street or i'm walking at nam show somebody calls me carmen i won't answer yeah right <laughs> right it's not you now now you, you speaking of your days with rod stewart man you, you co-wrote not only were you the drummer but you co-wrote do you think i'm sexy and young turks two of his biggest hits and then talk about those days because rod was on top of the world when you were with him well it's funny enough you know i have a show called the rod experience and uh, i got myself danny johnson to play with rod for two years and jimmy cresco to play with aerosmith and he also played with rod for three years and, and we do like the 1979 Blondes Have More Fun Tour show. We do that whole show, you know. And, you know, and now, you know, people are comparing this. And, well, there's so many raw tribute shows out there, you know. So to try and make it different, I just came up with this idea today to call it like a storyteller thing and actually tell stories that play three or four songs, sit down on a bench with the three of us and talk about, you know, the raw days. Yeah. And what went on, and then play more music, and then more story, and then you know more music, and then like a Q and A from the audience yeah. to really get the audience engaged in what we're doing, rather than just going up there playing the show to make it a little different, you know? Yeah. Because we have a guy that looks like Rod, and and, and sings like Rod, and uh, and you know we got three original members of the Rod Stewart group, plus an all star band with Kenny uh, Kenny Aronson. And, and uh, uh, Alan St. John that played with, you know, everybody between the two of them. But those days were incredible. I mean, yeah. come on, you know, you had like five nights at the Garden, six nights at the Forum in L.A., you know, five nights at Wembley, you know, just like unbelievable. You know, he was at the top of the game. He was the best front man in the world by far. Yeah. Singer and front man. He was amazing. Yeah. You know, I was privileged and happy to be with him at those times because from 76 to 82, he was on the top of the world. Yeah. You know? yeah, yeah. Even if after that, you know, he, he was still big, but he wasn't as big. He, he never did six nights at the forum again, you know? Yeah. Or five nights at the garden again, you know? But he's still big in Europe. I mean, in England, he's still at soccer stadium. But now he's doing that crooner stuff now. And I, I, I just went to his 70th birthday party. And uh, the theme was a 40s theme. You had to dress up in a 40s tuxedo and my girlfriend had to dress up in a 40s gown and uh, he was in a 40s outfit he haven't even had a chair slip back like 40s <laughs> yeah. he's totally into it he's going the route right yeah he, yeah, he is and you know and he's like the, the great Gatsby and the big giant mansion up in Hollywood Hill and you know in the Beverly Hills you know up in the mountains there and, yeah but he deserves it man. He's a, he was the best front man 
in the business. Oh, yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Everybody knows you from your work in the rock world, but you received classical training as well, and you came up like with Buddy Rich and Gene Krupa. Those were your idols, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. Because when I came up, there were no real idols except drum idols except in the jazz world. You know? Yeah. Yeah, right. And you were basically one of the forerunners of bringing the drums to the front of the band. I mean, especially in the yeah. power rock situation or, yeah. or vanilla yeah. fudge, everybody was talking about everybody in the band and their not only their virtuosity, but this amazing drummer with the double bass. And, you know, a lot of guys cite you as influence, and, and that includes John Bonham, who talked about you. Yeah, well, uh, you know, fortunately for us, I mean, we were the, uh, and fortunately for them, because we were the first band to take them on tour. And not only did we take them on tour, the very first gig they did in Denver in 1968 in December, I think it was December 26, 1968, they opened up for Spirit and Vanilla Fudge. We were top of the bill. It was us and Spirit. The gig was already sold out. We didn't need them on there. We had the same agent as they did, and we were on the same label, and you know, Peter Grand, the manager, was hooked into our attorney. And my manager had a concert company, and we were all hooked in together, so... We put them on the on the on that gig, the very first gig, and we actually paid half of their fee, Vanilla Fudge. So had we not done that, they would have never done that gig, and that was a gig that started their career. Yeah, you know. So we became friends with them. You know, I mean, John Bonham. I mean, it's hard to believe now that Robert Plant and John Bonham were totally unknown. Right. You know, John Ed loved my drum set. It had the big double bass drum, Ludwig, so he wanted a set like that. I called up Ludwig and, and told him, I think these guys are going to be big. I mean, that now is like an understatement of five decades. <laughs> you <laughs> you know? got something here. Yeah, right. Yeah, and he got the same set I got eventually, you know, a couple of months later. And, and he was a Ludwig endorser, and I, I, I helped him hook up. Mm. And he told me at the time I was one of his idols. Your work with Vanilla Fudge was also one of the first bands to combine soul with psychedelia. Even some of the bands in, in the Motown roster kind of were influenced a bit by what you guys were doing. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Rare Earth came out, the, the only white, blue-eyed soul psychedelic band on Motown. But then you, then you had all this other stuff. You had the Temptations doing, you know, psychedelic and that stuff. You know, and it's funny that we have a new album coming out called uh, Spirit of 67, where we took all these songs from 1967 and we, you know, did a little bit of symphonic, you know, symphonic rock, psychedelic, funk, soul, all this stuff matched into different trips, different kinds of passages and interludes and stuff like we do. Yeah. It's a really, really good record. I mean, the production on it is fantastic. Excellent. So that's yeah. uh, Spirit of 67. That'll be the new Vanilla Fudge record. Will you guys tour after yeah. that? Yeah, well, we're doing some dates. We're doing some dates. We're lining up dates now. Uh, we've got some East Coast dates lined up, and, uh, you know, we're, we're working on other dates throughout the country. Uh, the the record is uh, actually for uh, for pre order now on Amazon. Okay. You know, if you just anybody goes to Amazon, pre order it, and uh, yeah, it's a really great record. I mean, I've been involved in some really cool stuff in the last few months. Yeah. And we're working on a new on a new cactus record. Mm -hmm. Okay. That'll be out this summer, and uh, you know, I did this rated X record with. Uh, but uh, Joel and Turner and Tony Franklin on Frontiers, that's been out. And then I did a, a live record with my brother Vinny, Drum Wars, 
which right. is awesome because, you know, really we've been doing drum wars all around the world for the last couple of years and having a lot of fun doing it. And then we were thinking about doing a CD, but really the, the way to do a CD with drum wars was the first one was had to be a live CD. Yeah. Because it was conceived, conceived as a live show. You know, and a live show is the way it should should be released. So we just we did release that, and that's, uh, now last week we released a video and a, uh, a a new edited version of the video, which is a song from Dio, "Stand Up and Shout," in which we both play together, and we take fours at the end. You know, and it's a lot of fun when we, you know, Vinny will start a drum fill and I'll finish it, you know. Yeah. Really cool stuff. Yeah, so, dr drum wars. So I've been doing some good stuff. Yeah, drum wars on Rocker Records by Cleopatra. Excellent. Also get that at Amazon, and, and I think Best Buy has it, and, um, you know, local actual record stores will have it. Also. Great. You know, you're talking about Cactus and uh, just the history of that band, and, and what a great band that was really soulful and grungy and and you had rusty yeah. day he was nuts right i mean he had a lot of stuff going on in his life he was nuts so he got killed he yeah. got shot in a in a drug deal in florida wow now, he lived he lived the life everything he sung about he lived it yeah you know, carrying knives carrying guns doing drugs dealing drugs you know he so did how, all that stuff, how does know? the band deal with that do you just kind of Turn, turn a well, we, eye. Well, what, with him, with him. Well, I mean, you know, that's what was going on back then. You yeah. know, there was no. Got to remember, there was no like security on planes. You know, he used to carry knives and guns on the planes. You know, <laughs> uh, he was a crazy guy. You know, one time we had him and Ginger Baker. Uh, he went up to Ginger Baker and said, "You know, hi, I play with Cactus with Carmine and, and Tim from Vanilla Fudge." And, and Ginger looked at him and said, "Why don't you go talk to yourself?" I thought he was going to kill him. Oh yeah. man! And then they ended up in a car together because both of them got left at uh, the train station when we were taking a train in Germany on this tour. We were on tour with Ginger Baker's Air Force and a, and a whole bunch of us, and somehow they got left at the uh, train station. They had a ride in a car together. So we thought the car was going to pull up and there'd be blood all over the black back seat, yeah, you know. Right. <clears throat> but it was okay. They ended up being friends on the ride. You know, he was a very uh, anti-establishment yeah. kind of guy. He's rough as hell. I mean, Atlantic Records didn't like him because he wasn't a great singer. He was just a, it was like Mick Jagger, you know. Mick Jagger's not a great singer, right. but he was a great front man, yeah. you know. And a great lyricist, you know. He wrote some great lyrics to the songs. And Jimmy McCarty, really a vastly underrated guitarist, just a monster. Oh, my God, a monster guitar player. I and, mean, you know, he was, at the time when we got him, he was he was like the Jeff Beck of America, you know. Yeah. He was around, he was around you know, when the Yardbirds were around with Jeff Beck, he was around with Mitch Ryder. Yeah. Doing the same stuff, you know. You recorded with so many people, but one of the things that sticks out is when you played with Pink Floyd, this was... Back in the momentary lapse of reason album, you played on Dogs of War. What does a Nick Mason say about that when his own band brings in a different drummer to play some? What was the story well, behind that? It was it was it was weird. I mean, I just got a message from from Bob Edgerton on my phone, and it said, uh, "Carmine, give me a call. I got I'm producing an album that's screaming for Carmine drum fills." So I figured he's doing a new band or something. So when I called him, I said, who's the band? I said, Pink Floyd. That was my first question. I said, where's Nick? Yeah. He goes, oh, Nick, Nick will be there. I said, well, why isn't he playing? He said, well, you know, he's been racing his Ferraris and his, his calluses are sore and, you know, they're soft. And, and everybody just wanted to bring some new blood in for some new energy. Oh. 
I said, oh, okay. And it had Jim Keldner played on the record too. Yeah. You know? And uh, so I went in and I played that song. And I tell you the truth, I recorded on three 24 track tapes, which is like 30 minutes each. So I filled up three reels of drum parts for that song. Wow. And then they put it together. And every time I kept calling Bob Ezrin, I'd say, Bob, you know, how's it sound? And he goes, well, in the word, daring. Yeah. I go, great. Okay, <laughs> when, when can I hear it? Well, I'm still working on it. Then I'll call him two weeks later. How's it sound? Very, uh, very uh, fantastic, amazing. You know, so basically, so I never got to hear it until I was up in Canada doing a movie called Black Roses, which ended up being like a cult heavy metal movie with... Uh-huh. Uh, with the guy that plays uh, a big pussy on a Sopranos, he was in it. Oh wow! You know, and then the album came out, and I went downstairs in the mall, and I, I had my Walkman, and I bought the cassette of the album, and I listened to it in my hotel room before I went to on the set, and that's when I heard it. And I said, "Wow, it sounds great!" And yeah. then I said, "Dude, I'm playing with Pink Floyd." I mean, see, Pink Floyd has never been a big deal to me because we used to play shows with Pink Floyd when they were same size as Vanilla Fudge, you know, mm-hmm. back in '67. We went to England. We played a bunch of shows with them, and they were just like another band, like us, you know. Yeah, but they just happened to get big, just like Led Zeppelin. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. right. I'm going to play a rock star name association with Carmine a piece here. I'm going to mention some people that you played with, and you just kind of give us a little background on what it was like in the in the time, okay? Okay. So you played on the Paul Stanley uh, 1978. Uh, solo album tell us about working with Paul well me and Paul have been friends uh, since I I was playing with Mountain uh, with Leslie West in 1975 replacing Corky Lang for three months and on some of the gigs we did we opened up to Kiss on their very first big arena tour and I got to know Paul from then on and uh, he told me a story that they'd never tell me now that when they went to see Alice Cooper and Cactus at the Comac Arena Long Island. That's what gave them the idea for Kiss. Him and him and uh, I guess my I think it was him and Gene. Yeah. You know. And uh, they said if we can get the energy and the rawness of Cactus with the stage show of Alice Cooper, we'd have some hell of a band. Yeah. So, uh, and so that's what he told me back then on the first tour. But now I don't think they would say that. <laughs> no, Gene Simmons would would buy the uh, copyright to the word Cactus if you brought that up. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so anyway, but but me and Paul became friends. We were friends a long time. Yeah. And and when I was playing with Rod in like 77, 76, he moved out to L.A. and uh, I I needed a manager. So he hooked me up with Bill O'Coin, who was their manager. Yeah, yeah. And they had a West Coast office and Bill was managing me. So I was hanging out with, with Paul and the Kiss guys, you know, all of them. Yeah. Uh, all through that time, you know, 76, 77. And finally in 78, when they were doing those albums, Paul asked me to play on it. I actually played on about five songs, but that's the only one that made it for whatever reason. Um, but everybody tells me it's the best song on the album anyway. So, yeah. uh, so, yeah, so I'm glad to be associated with that. But I still yet to get the gold and platinum record for that, to tell you the truth. I never got one. I've been meaning to get, you know, to call Paul and uh, ask him if they're okay the fact that I can uh, do that, not, you know. Yeah, because I never got those. I think that was an important album in my life. How about uh, your time with uh, Ted Nugent? 
Ted was uh, interesting because when I, you know, I know Ted since the Amboy Dukes days when he used to play opening up for Vanilla Fudge. And, you know, we did lots of tours together. And then my manager, Phil Basile, ended up managing Ted. He's the one that told him to call it Ted Nugent and the Amboy Dukes. And eventually it just ended up being Ted Nugent. So we had done a TV show together. I think it was 19 January 81. It was the American Music Awards. I did it with Rod and, uh, and Ted did it. And Ted saw me playing with Rod. And I think we were doing Passion and Young Turks. I can't remember what song it was. Anyway, at the end of the show, Ted came up to me and said, hey, look, when you're done playing this wimpy rock and you want to play a man's rock, give me a call. <laughs> okay. So so I think it was like at the beginning of 82 or the end of 81 when I, I was done with the Rod Stewart band. I called Ted. He said, oh, come out to the ranch and uh, to the farm, he called it, and let's talk and see what we can put together. Right. So we did it, and uh, we put we put together an album and a tour for 1982. And it was great. It was a lot of fun. I never worked with him again. And I found out his manager always said that, you know, I was too much like Ted. I was a leader. I got my own record deal to have my own publicity people, managers. He said they needed more of a side man. Interesting. You did some great work with Pat Travers as well, who's an underrated rocker. I think he is an underrated rocker. Patrick's a great guitar player. Yeah. Great, great, you know, really great blues rock player who's, the nicest guy. Most guitar players have weird attitudes, but he was fine. I mean, he was really a good dude. Yeah. You know, I really enjoyed playing with Pat. And I, I, the only reason why when we don't do anything anymore is because basically when he does it, he has to share, we share the the revenue together. And the way he set up bill-wise and everything, he needs, to, he needs to make more money to keep his lifestyle going with his wife and kids and stuff. So he does better playing on his own, even though we draw more people together. Yeah. But it doesn't really translate into the actual difference in financing, you know. Talk about your work on the Private Eyes album with Tommy Bolin, which is one of my favorite records and, and another one of my wow. favorite artists. Well, Tommy, I've, I knew Tommy when when we broke up BBA. We were going to look at me and Tim were looking for another guitarist that had the B in his initial, and Tommy Bolin came up, but he wasn't known yet. Yeah, the only thing he was known for was Zephyr. At the time, we played with Zephyr with Cactus. That's how I knew him. So I had flown to Denver on the way to L.A. in 1975. I was on my way out to look at this band KGB, which had Mike Bloomfield in it. And I stopped off there, and I checked out Tommy, and we had a jam at this club called Ebbets Field. And Ebbets Field recorded it live. It'd be, somebody released it as an album recently. And Tommy was great, but he didn't really have enough of a name. And he came to L.A., and, he, and I remember getting a call from Deep Purple and asking me that... They knew I knew him. He asked me what kind of guy he was, if I think he'd be good in the band. And I told him, yeah, I think he'd be great in the band because he was a great guitarist. So then they took him in, and then he started his solo career, and then he asked me to play on the second album, you know? Yeah. Last night, I got a text from Eddie Money, and he was saying, man, I just got to tell you, you played Killer on my album. And I remember I played on the album, but I didn't remember this track. So I went on iTunes, and I heard the track. I said, oh, wow. Yeah. That was pretty good. I didn't remember that. I remember being in the studio with Ron Everson and him and me. And it was at the record plant. I remember the setting, but I don't remember the actual music. You're a busy guy. Yeah, I mean, I'm busy, but, you know, i got to say that, you know, the business has changed so much. Yeah, we talked so about this the other day. It's just, it's a so totally much harder to, I mean, yeah, I mean, look at, you know, look at the Grammys. I mean, so, you know, it's, it's, it's crap. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I used to be on that uh, the Grammy uh, team that voted for the Grammys. 
and I don't know, it must have been 10 years ago I got out of it because I didn't know anybody on it. You know, I didn't know any of the groups anymore. I knew, I, you know, so I started voting for my friends, anybody that was my friend. I mean, look at, you know, it took Johnny Winter to die to get a Grammy. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You know? I hear you. You know, I mean, he died to the game of Grammy for a blues album. He's been releasing blues albums for years. Yeah. Well, Carmine of Peace, always a pleasure, man. We've been bros for a long time, and and it's always a great trip through the world of rock and roll with you. Now, we're going to check out Drum Wars with your brother Vinny. Yeah. And that's okay, man. Check that out. And also, the new Vanilla Fudge record, Spirit of 67, where they just go back and pick out some great tunes, as they always did. You guys are always great at taking a song to its essence and then totally recreating it under the Vanilla Fudge uh, filters. That's that's a good way to put it. Most people just say, doing covers. I go, no, we're not doing covers. No. <laughs> no, you're not doing covers. You're you're re-sculpting and, and making We're recovering. Excellent. <laughs> great stuff. We're recovering. Carmine of Peace. Always a pleasure, man. Okay, bro. Thank you, man. And there you have it. Thanks so much for joining us once again on the big episode four of the Mike Tomato Happening. We're loving doing it and we're glad you're enjoying listening to it make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcast streams i want to thank everyone at fossil entertainment group for helping me put this together my lovely wife denise and daughter leah and all of you for listening go out there and have your best week ever we'll catch you next week on the mike tomato happening